0: Some years ago, a young man approached me during coffee hour to ask a question about the content of the sermon. Without introduction, he came up abruptly and said, Do you mind if I ask you something about what you said today? The day's message had been built around the very same gospel text we just heard, the story of the laborers in the vineyard. He told me, frankly, he disagreed with my point seemed to him that everyone should be treated fairly, that the guys who work less hours should get less pay. The ones who work the most should get the most. In my best deflecting mode, I asked him what he did for a living. He said he was a venture capitalist. I said something like, Oh, that sounds pretty dynamic. I bet you work a lot of very long hours. He readily agreed. He said the younger recruits in his business were treated more like slaves. He had clocked two years' worth of seven days a week on the job. I asked him why he did it, why he was willing to put up with that treatment, and he looked at me like I had two heads, as well he should have, because we both knew the answer. He wanted to make a lot of money. He was on his way, paying his dues today for the big payday tomorrow. I bet there's a bunch of folks from a variety of professional tracks tuning into this service who understand this point of view. I wished him well at that and then asked if he had ever considered doing anything else. He said that during his sophomore year in college, he had thought about teaching. He had had a couple of really, really important teachers in his life that had inspired and pushed him. But this flirtation didn't last long. I asked him the pros and cons. (laughs) He said, well, you know, the money in venture capital far outweighed everything else. Again, I, I wished him well, saying I hoped he was able to grab the famous brass ring of success. Then I asked if he thought teachers were fairly paid. He stood silent for a moment, but eventually said, Well, anyone who goes into teaching knows the drill. They know the financial universe they're entering. So what I'd say is the hardest working teachers ought to be better compensated. I told him that in principle I agreed, but he did have to allow that in the grand scheme of things, there was a big disconnect between how venture capitalists were rewarded versus teachers. The concept of fairness kind of warps across fields, even though we think of it as a static norm. I added that it seemed that fairness per se had little to do with how different occupations were valued monetarily within our culture. Say, for instance, the ability to throw a ball through a hoop versus an exceptional ability at teaching and mentoring young people how to use their minds and develop their character. It could be argued, could it not, I asked that one of those endeavors had more generative, positive impact. Well, as he considered this, I asked what had brought him to church. He said he wasn't entirely sure, but he felt the urge to check in with his spirituality. That's how he put it, check in with his spirituality. Did you grow up in a religious tradition, I asked. No, dad was a non-practicing Catholic. Mom grew up as nothing, really. I took a few courses on Buddhism in college. Recently though, a a friend told me about, that I might want to check out Christ Church. That's why I'm here. (laughs) Well, that and honestly, because I didn't have a too late Saturday night. Well, I told him I was glad he came and found his way downstairs to make his case. I reminded him that the story we read didn't come from me, but Jesus. I added that if it had come from, say, my Uncle Bill, we'd likely hear it differently, but since it came from Jesus, we give it a privileged status. And even the folks who like to dissect the historical accuracy of the Bible generally concur that this story came from Jesus. It's completely consistent with the heart of his message concerning God's goodness. My new young friend was clearly bright, thoughtful, and earnest. Just a tad arrogant, but that was okay with me. I liked his energy and combativeness. Of course, there's a sense in which he was right about the parable. It does stand outside our normal ideas of fairness. But then, as I just said, it's less about fairness and more about goodness, God's essential nature. Jesus isn't concerned with labor management relations here clothing his point in the garb of money, which he often did because it lies so, so close to our hearts. Jesus grabs our attention to teach something about the nature of God, about something we call grace and God's tendency to dispense it in a manner that seems completely unfair by the standards of our neediness. A good chunk of our neediness is the result of our belief that there is only a limited amount of good stuff in the world, reach down into our psyches far enough, we'll discover it's really about our belief that there's a very limited amount of love in the world. We assume that love is a very, very scarce resource which accounts for our lack of interest in sharing it. God knows we're stingy with it. Most of our fairness issues derive from this arid place. So we devise elaborate rules whereby we can each compete for the limited resource, and if we play by the rules or sometimes avoid the rules and work very, very hard regularly comparing our bottom lines, we can end up doing better than at least a few others. Money may not be love, but hey, it's a lot better than other things. As the old vaudeville performer Sophie Tucker famously opined, I've been rich and I've been poor and rich is better. The problem in the parable is that everyone got the same wage, despite the hours of work and despite the fact that that the wage offered at the start of the day seemed fair. But then, as I said, this is really a story about God, who God is and how God functions. At the very heart of all things, the rules warp. Things are not as they appear. Sort of like how Einstein's theories of relativity warp Newton's standard equations that seem to describe the world as we know it. In the cosmic frame of reference, the rules governing time, space, and gravity warp into near incomprehensibility. E equals mc squared upends the world as we experience it. Likewise, at the very heart of things... God has thrown out our intricately detailed rule books about fairness. There is no more tit for tat. At the heart of all things, God has done away with keeping score. He did that through the work of Jesus. When Jesus got nailed to the cross, the rule book got nailed right along with him. I'm indebted to Robert Farrar Capon's thinking about this. He was an insightful interpreter of Jesus' parables about God's grace. There's a link in the comments section where you can learn more about him and his thinking. Spiritually speaking, when Jesus died, the rule book died. It ended. It was finished. As far as God was concerned, that was it. Everyone had access to the same love. Everyone could live into his or her life unencumbered by bean counting. Everyone was free of it. All they had to do was act like it. Granted, the acting like it is where the rub is because it's entirely optional. That is, we're free to take it on or not. We're free to take on God's goodness or not. Completely free. Paul will write to his friends, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Free for what? Well, free to live in God's grace with as much generosity of mind and heart as we can muster. Since our God is so phenomenally generous with God's grace towards us. This is the same grace that inspired John Newton to write his most popular Christian hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. For a couple of weeks, we'll be reading portions of Paul's most joyful letter to his friends in Philippi. You heard some opening sentences today. It reeks of joy and thanksgiving. Every page is full of hope, and it's all the more remarkable since Paul wrote it from prison. He'll conclude his letter by saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer— With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How is it that Paul doesn't write like a victim even though he's imprisoned? How is it that he expresses joy and thanksgiving, not anger and bitterness at the grossly unfair hand he's been dealt? How is that? How is it that he will write elsewhere that Jew and Greek, male and female, free and slave, all have access to the same God of graceful love? None of the existing human scorecards reflected the deepest truth. Nothing in a person's givenness could separate them from God's astonishing grace. For many, this deep truth is a bitter pill to swallow because they find it very hard to believe that the world isn't from start to finish a tit-for-tat sort of place. They work, If they work hard enough, if they master the rules long enough, they can wind up with more than somebody else and thereby finally matter, yet secretly never stop believing the opposite. The way they'll know that they matter comes by way of comparing themselves to others on on some completely idiosyncratic scale of worthiness. And they can't help but translate that mindset into their parenting and into their politics and into their economics. From my years in this business, I have witnessed a very peculiar thing. God sends out the call. The prison doors are open. Step out into the freedom. Leave the cells of your own making behind. It's a marvel of the human condition that so many choose to stay right where they are, locked in a prison fashioned by a completely arbitrary set of rules rather than stepping out into the perfect freedom God confers. Here's the thing for us. Whether you've been part of the faith family your whole life or a late arriving newbie, All of us stand equally naked before God. I am like you in this regard, just like you. That sensibility permeates our life and our work. That's the sensibility we're meant to learn here and take out into the world. That's the gospel that's brimming with grace and goodness and drives us to live lives committed to a closer and closer approximation of God's design specifications. That's the grace, the call, and the responsibility. It's awesome, fantastic, and the engine that can drive the world's transformation.